Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And our guest this week is a producer, author, occasional actor, widely acclaimed cinematographer, Emmy-winning TV director, and widely acclaimed film director. He served as cinematographer and director of photography on some of the most admired films of the last 40 years, including Blood Simple, Big, Raising Arizona, Throw Mama from the Train, Miller's Crossing, When Harry Met Sally, and Misery. He would go on there to direct the popular features The Addams Family, Adam's Family Values, Men in Black, Men in Black 2, Men in Black 3, Wild Wild West, Big Trouble, RV, and Get Shorty. He's also served as a producer and executive producer on the films Out of Sight, Enchanted, The Lady Killers. And Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. And on TV programs such as The Tick, Fantasy Island, A Series of Unfortunate Incidents. Events. uh, (laughs) Where where are you getting that? uh, A Series (laughs) of Unfortunate Events, Pushing Daisies, for which he was awarded an Emmy for Best Directing of a comedy series. In a career that started way back when he purchased a used 16 millimeter movie camera, he's gone on to work with Tom Hanks, Tommy Lee Jones, the Coen brothers, uh, Gene Hackman, John Travolta, Rob Reiner, Will Smith, Albert Finney, and Robin Williams as well as our podcast guests, Rick Baker, Carol Kane, and M. Emmett Walsh. His new memoir, and it's a good one, his new memoir is called Barry Suddenfeld, Call Your Mother, Memoirs of a Neurotic Filmmaker. Please welcome to the show an artist of many talents and a man who says... His life's motto is live in fear. The very funny Barry Seidenfeld. Hi, Gilbert. I think we're out of time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The intros are always ridiculously long, Barry. It's sort of like this is your life without Ralph Edwards. You know, the other thing I have to say, Gilbert, is uh, congratulations. I can't imagine someone with a voice that you wouldn't think would end up on uh, podcasts or radio. It's truly amazing. <laughs> the mellifluous tones. Uh. Now, be- before I get to the only thing I really want to talk about with you, porn films. Sure. Uh, <laughs> could you tell us the story of how the title of the book came about? Sure. Well, as we now know, the name of the book is called Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. A lot of people think it's called just called Call Your Mother, but uh, because on the book jacket, there's a different color for Barry Sonnenfeld. Yeah, so I admit, it's, uh, I admit it's confusing. But in any case, uh, 
uh, in uh, early 1970, I was uh, 17 years old and I was at Madison Square Garden with my girlfriend. I was a senior in high school and it was 2.20 in the morning and we were at the first Peace concert. Uh, you know, uh, there were uh, Jimi Hendrix and Peter, Paul and Mary and the cast of Hair, all these uh, people and 19,600 people in the audience and at 2.20 in the morning while Jimi Hendrix was warming up over the PA system came the following announcement. Barry Sonnenfeld, call your mother. Uh, so uh, that's where the title co- comes from. Uh, of course, I assume that my father had died because how else could someone convince anyone at the garden to take it through all the layers of people to get to the announcer at the garden who would be willing to make that announcement. Yeah, so it's quite a feat. But, but by the time I got to the payphone, I was weeping uncontrollably. I assumed my father was dead. My mother assumed I was dead because I was supposed to be home at two and it was now two twenty. <laughs> Overprotective, do you think? <laughs> You said somewhere in an interview that you think it may you may have played a small role in Jimi Hendrix's death. <laughs> uh, not me, my mother. Oh, uh, yeah. No, no, he died uh, a few months later, and he disbanded. It was the last performance he gave. He disbanded the group. He gave an audience uh, a interview to Rolling Stone magazine, saying it was a perfect ending to his relationship with his band breaking up at Madison Square Garden. So, yeah, I think my mom may have killed Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and, and and to make the story even more embarrassing, wasn't the audience chanting? Well, yeah, you know, the Garden has an amazing, amazing audience. And uh, as soon as the announcement came on, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, it started in the blue seats. Those are the cheap seats up where I was because I stood up, therefore announcing to everyone, I am Barry Sonnenfeld, the chant of Barry, Barry. <laughs> Normally it's like defense, defense, you know, when we were at those great Nick games, but now they're chanting Barry. And I don't know if the chanting got down to the garden floor or not, but uh, Jimmy stormed off. He, uh, did about a song and a quarter and left. So uh, thanks, Mom. Hilarious. Uh, to say that you were a, an overprotected child, I guess, Barry, would, would be an understatement. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the big, uh, the biggest parts of the book. Yeah. You know, my mother said that if I went away to sleepaway school, others call it college, uh-huh. she would commit suicide. Uh, so I spent... <laughs> True story. So I spent three years living at home in Washington Heights, attending a horrible school. NYU used to have a campus in the Bronx uh-huh. called called uh, University Heights. And I would go there only three days a week. I only took political science classes because they met Monday, Wednesday and Thursday. So I could take classes from nine to two and then leave. It was like going to day camp. There was no dorms there or anything mm-hmm. like that. And then when I was going to be a senior, NYU sold the campus and they said, everyone has to go downtown. I refused. So they said, all right, go to any college you want, transfer the credits 
back to NYU and we'll give you a degree. So I thought, this is great. I get to leave home as a senior and as a bonus, my mother commits suicide. Two birds, <laughs> one stone. This is fantastic. <laughs> so I spent my senior year at Hampshire College. My mother, unfortunately, reneged and remained alive. Uh, but uh, eventually she died. So it's not all bad news. Hampshire College in the Berkshires, where, where Gilbert is right now. Really? Are you He's- anywhere near Springfield, Mass.? Yes. There you go. Well, yeah. uh, Hampshire was up at... Uh, I like that your wife in the background had to tell you if you were... Yeah. Oh, he, doesn't know, he doesn't know what state he's in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Barry, I, we're, New, we're New Yorkers. Gilbert's from Coney Island. I'm from Queens. So reading the I'm book... Shocked. And, yeah, I know. <laughs> Re- reading about punch ball and stick ball and and going to Yankee games and that you know that kind of childhood is something we can relate to. We've talked we've talked about it on the show. Gilbert, can you relate to any of Barry's upbringing though in terms of overprotective parents or or neurosis? I know you're all about fear. Yeah, right. definitely fear. Ah. Well- well, let me give you some advice. Uh and I know you embrace this, Gilbert. There's no upside to being an optimist. The only (laughs) upside is pessimism, and I'll explain to you why. If you get on an airplane and you elbow the person next to you, remember when people used to fly on airplanes? Yes. And and if you say, this plane is going to crash before we get to Cleveland, it's a win-win. If the plane starts nosediving to the ground, you get to elbow your mate and say, am I right or what? <laughs> and if it doesn't crash, you live. This, it's only upside. So if you embrace <laughs> pessimism and fear, you're, you're a smart, healthy guy. I think you're I, talking to the right guy. I think, I think it was Jerry Lewis's father who said to him something like, always see the bad side and you'll never be disappointed. No, exactly. Absolutely. Hey, speaking of growing up uh, in New York, did you guys call it a Spalding or a Spalding? Oh, that's a good question. Spalding. We we called it a Spalding, too. Yeah, we called it a Spalding, but it's not spelt that way. Rob Reiner, who grew up in New Rochelle, calls it a Spalding. Called it a Spalding. Did you guys ever play Scully? That's oh, the game with the bottle cap. Oh yeah, you'd fill the caps with the wax, the melted wax. Of course, I used Hanukkah candles. <laughs> <laughs> I had the most colorful Scully caps. I also filled some of them because you could trade them out. So some of them I had with that green clay that you got in elementary school that always went under your nails. Uh, Yes. Sure. I would sometimes I put clay in there because if I thought someone was going to knock me out of a box, I'd turn my bottle cap upside down and the clay would stick to the pavement. So when they hit my bottle cap, their cap would bounce off, but mine would stay in place. I was a genius. In <laughs> That's a lot of ingenuity. <laughs> Gilbert, what are you most afraid of? I know you wor- you're a worrier. I mean, Barry doesn't like to fly, but uh, you've, you've kind of made peace with that over the years, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I, I was never scared to fly so much as everything around it. Packing my <laughs> bags, getting to the airport, uh, being on the right flight. Sometimes I'm on a flight and I'm thinking, 
uh oh, should I ask someone if this is the flight to California? <laughs> <laughs> or am I going somewhere else? You, you know what I love about this podcast so far? Although I, we're, we're, we're doing it on Zoom so we can see each other, although yeah. no one else will see this. No. The entire time Gilbert speaks, I get to see his wife in the background sort of shaking her head no or nodding <laughs> in agreement. Yeah. I know so much about you, Gilbert, just watching your wife who's got some sort of salad that she's working on uh, and she's sucking it so she doesn't make any sound. But it's just extraordinary oh, watching yeah. Gilbert and his wife. I know everything about their relationship. Yeah. That's it. That's it. What? Yeah, uh, Some, sometimes when someone asks me, like, what grades are your children in? I have to ask her. I have no idea. You, you could tell no. me they graduated college or they started kindergarten. I don't know. No, I, I love it. I, I, I have a feeling that she sa occasionally says to you, you're going to wear that tie? <laughs> she's nodding, by the way, just for those that don't have video. Uh, she's nodding. <laughs> your, your, your wife emerges, your wife, Sweetie, emerges as a, as a, a pretty prominent character throughout the book, Barry. And it's, ra it's rather touching what partners you guys are. You know, how she, yeah. helps, you, how she helps you make decisions, how she's, she's sort of a rudder for you. It's, co it's kind of moving. Oh, no, she's definitely a, a rudder and a motor. Uh, no, she's uh, great. And, uh, you know, I, I say in the book, if, if, if I had never met Sweetie, I think I'd still be living at home with my deceased mother, who would be, uh, you know, my father actually asked us if he could be taxidermied. He wanted to be taxidermied and left in his chair. And... <laughs> <laughs> We explained we explained to dad that that it's illegal to taxidermy a, a human. But no, sweetie's the best. Uh, so I would be with taxidermied dad and shriveling dead for 30 years mother. Uh, <laughs> if, if it weren't for meeting sweetie, she's she's extraordinary and she's everything. I'm not. She's optimistic. She's calm. Uh, you know, she loves getting on airplane. She loves flying. Uh, very different than me. And uh, by the way, Gilbert, I'll come over to your place and pack for you anytime you want. I live for packing. Really? I will get you to the, yes, wow. I will get you to the airport so early. You'll make earlier flights. Uh, uh, I'll change your life. Wow. Gil, you got to take him up on that. Oh, and I can honestly say I was in a Barry Soddenfeld film. Because in a series of unfortunate in events, events. incidents, <laughs> I did the quacking sounds of a duck. For did one, you? Yes. In, yes in, there's in, one time where a duck <laughs> is walking around and they hired me to do the quacking sounds. I still get residual checks. For it. Wow. You, well, Go did on, you, please. Did you, I was going to say, did you never audition for Barry in all your travels, Gilbert? I don't believe so. I don't know how that happened because your voice is so, as you know, so wonderfully specific. Uh, uh, do you do a lot of commercials? Oh, yeah. He does. Yeah, commercials, cartoons. Right. 
Barry, did you have a did you get in a shouting match with Larry David to see who, which of you was more neurotic? Oh no, we already knew who was more neurotic. Uh, <laughs> what happened was um, I knew Larry a little bit, not a lot. Uh, he used to be at some of the same uh, parties at Rob Reiner's house. We're both friends with Rob and. Both Larry and I have worked with Cheryl Hines multiple times. Obviously, Cheryl plays Larry's wife. And she was in RV and mm-hmm. an animated show. I don't know how I didn't hire you for the animated show, uh, Gilbert. But in any case, um, both Larry and I asked Cheryl who was more neurotic, me or or Larry. And she refused to answer because she knew whoever was not the most neurotic would feel totally defeated, you know, because you don't want to come in second place in (laughs) in neurosis. So uh, eventually uh, Cheryl was on the David Letterman show and said that I was the most neurotic person she had ever met. And uh, next thing you know, months later, I'm eating breakfast uh, in the power breakfast room in New York at the Lowe's Regency Hotel. Donald Trump is there. This is years before he was president, uh, Barry Diller. And from across the room, I hear Larry David's voice, which is as distinctive as Gilbert's, screaming, Sonnenfeld, you say you're the most neurotic person, and there you are eating eggs with yolks, putting butter on your bread, (laughs) and eating bacon? And I yell out, crispy bacon, across the room. (laughs) So... uh, (laughs) Uh, yeah, so uh, I, I won, and I am the most neurotic person Cheryl Hines has ever met, and that includes Larry David. So I'm pretty proud of that. I love it. And, and now we have to get, of course, my favorite topic, porn. You started out in porn films. So, Gilbert, before we <laughs> proceed... <laughs> Subtle, Gil. Uh, how uh, uh, how uh, graphic... Do you want me to be on this uh, as much as you possibly can? We can cut it, Barry. (laughs) We can always edit it down. (laughs) All right. Anything you want. And your wife is going to stay in the room and shake her head negatively as I speak. Okay. (laughs) Maybe, maybe, maybe maybe put a little, you know, uh, a little soft edges on it. Uh, Soft edges is uh, you never want to use the word soft when talking about porn. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Uh, all right, so I got out of film, and this is an important lesson for people, I think. Besides that, you don't want to ever release porns with smell-o-vision. But in any case, um, when I got out of film school, I decided I could be a, a cinematographer, I could be a cameraman. But I felt that in order to call myself a cameraman without feeling like a dilettante, I should own a camera. And this is like decades before video. So there was 16 millimeter, which was low budget and 35 millimeter. So a buddy and I bought a used 16 millimeter camera because we felt if we owned a camera, we could call ourselves a cameraman. And uh, the first job we got was shooting nine feature length pornos in nine days But the camera rental on those nine days paid for two-thirds of what we paid for the whole camera. So we were already two-thirds there, plus we got a salary. But here's the thing. The producer-director, Dick, 
was incapable of finding a an erotic way to shoot anything. We were the only porn studio that actually had a standing set that was a dentist's office because he thought... <laughs> and by the way, you know, Mr. Thirsty, the thing that goes in your mouth, it's, it's a... It's a sucker. It's not a pulse. So I don't know what he was intending to do with any of those devices. But <laughs> it, in any case, uh, we shot on a, in a loft on 17th and 5th. We built all these sets. And I'm going to cut to the chase, Gilbert. On the last day, uh, we shot a double insertion. Some call it a double penetration which is a man in a woman's ass and a man in a woman's vagina at the same time. <laughs> the, the actress who was hired doesn't show up. So Dick goes to Barney's, which is at 17th and 7th, and finds a woman tailor and says, hey, you're kind of pretty. Would you like to act in a porno? And she says, Sure. <laughs> So now we have a tailor at Barney's being fucked in the ass and in her vagina at the same time. But Dick, being the most unerotic filmmaker there is, figures out that this is a way to shoot a double insertion. He takes a leaf out of a <laughs> dining room table, but oh leaves that space open. So this woman is lying on the dining room table and... She's got a so her ass is sort of sway back, hanging in that leaf area. So you've got a man fucking her on top of the table, his knees on the table, fucking her in in her vagina, while Mark Antony is trying to fuck her in her ass, her ass sort of sticking out <laughs> underneath the table. So he's doing pull-ups. He's got his arms wrapped around the table, his legs wrapped around it, and he's trying to do these pull-ups and keep his dick in her ass, which isn't working out. So we put pillows underneath him, and the pillows keep slipping, so we build a perimeter with wood to keep the pillows in. Anyway, the, the, the thing about this is that Taylor from Barney's is thrilled and delighted <laughs> to such an extent that the man in her vagina says, I'm ready to come, which is amazing. It usually takes an average of four hours to get a cum shot. So he says, I'm ready. We get in there. Bob with the CP-16, I had a Bolex with a wide-angle lens because if you're close and wide, you really make a penis seem really big. <laughs> bigger than life. So anyway, oh, the guy in her vagina comes right away. This is amazing. We're ahead of schedule. And now Dick, uh, Mark Anthony says, I can't do any more pull-ups. And, uh, and so, and Mandy, we had a, a, a crew person called Mandy, the paper towel girl. Her job was cleaning up messes. Okay. So, and Mandy oh, keeps putting uh, Mark Anthony, Anthony's dick back into the woman's ass because he's upside down. So anyway, the guy in the vagina comes. So now Dick says, all right, let's close up the table. Let's keep fucking on the table. But now you're action. So she's on her hands and knees. Mark Anthony is fucking her in her anus. And once again, 
thrilled and delighted. Mark Anthony says, I'm ready to come. Again, four hours ahead of schedule. I get in incredibly close with my Bolex with a 10 millimeter <laughs> F1.6 Sweetar lens. Mark, and I'm maybe eight inches from her anus and his penis. And Mark oh, wow. Anthony pulls out of her rectum. And it turns out that basically her insides were as if a bottle of warm champagne that had been shaken for 20 minutes. So when he pulls out a fountain of warm, liquefied, loamy human excrement (laughs) shoots out and covers me, covers me because I'm right there in in excrata. So what do I do? I put my camera down. Oh, your wife has just left the room. I, that was it. That was it. I put the camera down and then vomit all over her ass. Storm off the set. Go into the elevator. Luckily, no one was on the elevator. Take the elevator down to the lobby and it's pouring rain and I am Willem Dafoe at the end of Platoon. I am standing on the corner of 17th and 5th with my arms outstretched like Jesus Christ, letting the cold April rain wash the excrement off of my clothes and my face. And of course, it's New York, so no one seems to like care or notice, except (laughs) I did smell a little bit off. So anyway, my point is uh, you really, uh, pornos are not as erotic as you think they are, (laughs) at least the ones we were making. Did that? Did that? Uh, did that dissuade you, Gilbert? Yeah, <laughs> from entering the industry. The most mind-boggling part of it is how you just—he just went into Barney's. Yeah, and yeah. and there's some woman, some lone yeah. woman. <laughs> yeah, want to get fucked in the ass and the pussy? <laughs> sure. You don't know me, but. Well, I'm trying to remember from the book, Barry. Weren't you mugged? Weren't two didn't two guys? Well, what happened right was, afterwards? Uh, so, yeah, so <laughs> that was the last day of shooting, and uh, we finished around four or five a.m. Uh, it was a disaster. It was my birthday, so uh, Mandy, the paper towel girl, brought out an Entenmann's vanilla cake with the chocolate ice cream and one candle and. The last remaining porn actor and Dick and uh, Mandy saying happy birthday to me. Um, and then I lived on 7th Street between A and B in the East Village. And we were at 14th and 5th. So there's a crosstown bus that went right by my house. While I'm waiting there, still a little damp and still a little rank, I was mugged. Uh, two huge guys came up to me, took my wallet took my watch. It, it's a, it's a longer story <laughs> it's in because the book. Yeah. It's, it's in the book because, uh, whenever things get really, uh, nerve wracking, I get really calm. But in any case, at some point, this guy says to me, the guy who took my watch says, you stink. Did you just shit yourself? <laughs> and I go, you know what? Here's the thing. I didn't shit, shit myself. I do stink, and you really don't want to know why. So we were having a conversation <laughs> while I was getting mugged. Eventually, uh, I got back my wallet and watch and got on the bus, and uh, 
I basically wanted to just sleep for a year until my next birthday. Uh, literally, your wife is gone and is not she, coming back. I this don't is amazing. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. <laughs> That's a beautiful New York story. And I, I will tell our listeners, too, that both of the stories, both the porn shoot uh, and the mugging, are told in much greater detail in the book. So, so to know more, they'll have to get their hands on the book. And, there's, and, and I yeah. love inside jokes in movies, Barry. And in Men in Black 2, there is, a, there is an allusion to one of your porn memories, to one of your porn sets. Or not even an is illusion. It? It's, it's, a, it's a direct uh, Oh, that's right. Reproduction. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, the worm guys live in this uh, sort of uh, hip east side apartment. Uh, the little scrawny worm guys in Men in Black and Men in Black 2 uh, with a white shag carpet and uh, sort of a cottage cheese ceiling. Right. And uh, it, it was based on the one day we left the loft during the nine days of porno to uh, just have one other set was in was in this apartment. And uh, uh, I based uh, the Worm Guys apartment on Men in Black 2 based on uh, this this place we shot this one scene with Robin Bird, who used to be a porn actress. Oh, sure. Before oh, yeah. She became, bang yeah. your box. Yeah. Bang your box, baby. <laughs> bang your, yeah. Everybody in New York knows Robin Bird. Oh, yeah, she well, would come on at like three in the morning. When you say come, yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She well, she was legit by then, Barry. She was a, she was a cable access host. That's right, along with <laughs> Ugly George. That's you know, right. Gilbert. You know, you know who you remind your laughter reminds me so much of Joan Cusack. And I'll, I'll tell you what I said to Joan. Joan has the same sort of barking, loud, wonderful laugh that you did. And I said to Joan, some man, because of your laugh, is going to fall in love with you and marry you and think you're so adorable until years later, it's that same laugh that makes him think, I've got to get a divorce. <laughs> so I'm just... <laughs> How long have you guys been married? He's going to ask her. Yeah. Do you know? No. He doesn't know. 13 years. 13 years. You're going to wear that tie? (laughs) (laughs) Darren, do you try to pick clothes for him? Yeah, no. I'm guessing you've got five more years, Gilbert. (laughs) (laughs) What? 23 years. Right. But then she got then she got pregnant and you had to get married. <laughs> no answer. She, she finally she, gave in. She she fell in love with him, Barry, when she saw him eating out of someone else's plate at a party. <laughs> That's so Gilbert. Since you brought up Joan Cusack, I want to bring up Adam's Family Values, which my wife and I watched last night. And, you know, she she is, first of all, so many things about that. I mean, I mean, Paul Rudnick and uh, yeah. uh, some Bo, Bo Welch's work and, and Mark Shaman's music. And there's so, so many things going for it. But I heard you on with Alec Baldwin talking about how one, one of the most brilliant things about her in that movie is how quickly she goes from uh, grief when she's in the car, right. she's preparing her story after yeah. bumping, trying to bump off Fester. 
and she goes to that signature cackle that you're talking about. She is just magnificent and underrated, if that's possible. Yeah, no, she's amazing. And and that shot, uh, you know, she set a bomb to blow up faster. And uh, so we're on a close up of her and off camera, there's this huge explosion and a hubcap, uh, a, a piece. No, some sort of piece of uh, something lands in the foreground. Yeah, uh, I used a hubcap uh, sound because I didn't know Gil- Gilbert probably can give us a good hubcap sound. But in any case, um, uh, in the shot, she goes from weeping to cackling without any cutaways. And it's brilliant, that slow acting change within the same shot. I, I think, not to get technical, but I think that really good comedies play out. The comedy plays out without cutting. You know, I hate cutting to a close-up for a punchline or a joke. I love for the audience to find where the comedy is and to see it play out. And that's a perfect example that mm-hmm. there's no cutaway. It plays out in one continuous shot. Another example is in the first Men in Black, you see Tommy Lee Jones interrogating an alien. It's Will's first day. And in the background, Will is having to help an alien mother give birth. And you see Tommy interrogating this alien. And in the background, Will is being thrown up and down and the tentacle grabs him and he goes in the car and out of car and is bumping on the roof. But there's no cutaways. I don't cut to a close-up of Will being funny. I don't cut. It's all in this master shot, which is the way great comedies, you know, the ones directed by uh, Preston Sturgis or Howard Hawks, played out in these wonderful two sh- comedy two shots. So uh, I'm, I'm really proud of uh, doing that. And I love Joan's performance in, in that movie. So Just brilliant. brilliant. So brilliant. Yeah. And brilliant. you also, you also believe that comedy, uh, I was thinking about that shot in, in men in black, by the way, if, if you had cut to the close up, then you, you leave the joke, which is that Tommy, uh, that, 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 uh, uh, uh K is ignoring everything that's going on behind him. That's right. That's right. You'd you'd, uh, you'd you'd lose that you'd lose that moment. You'd lose almost the point of view of it. And also, if you cut to Will being funny, what you're saying is, I don't trust the audience to find out where the comedy is. I love for the audience to think they're smarter than the director, and yeah. and to for them to find the comedy instead of me. It's like explaining a joke. Cutting to a close up of a punchline is is just like explaining a joke, which is, you know, you've lost the game if you have to explain the joke. Sure, sure. Gil, we've, Gil, we've talked about this, how you hate, uh, you hate a music cue that oh, tells the audience comedy, to laugh. Comedy <laughs> music. Yeah. When a comedy scene's going on, it's like, and right. it's telling you comedy is happening here. You know, it's funny, and I, you know, the first half of the book is more about my childhood and Washington Heights and things like Punchbowl and all that, and the second half is more about my career in the movie business, but one of the things I talk about is when you do a comedy, when you direct a comedy, you don't want anyone on the show to know you're doing a comedy, and I say, if the composer knows, there'll be Mm -hmm. slide whistles and there'll be triangles. If the wardrobe person knows, everything will be colorful. If the lab knows, everything will be bright. And the worst is if the actors think they're working in a comedy. Uh, I remember I did a movie called Big Trouble, and I Tom Sizemore was in it. He, he played opposite Johnny Knoxville. 
And when I hired Sizemore, I said, all right, I'm going to hire you under two conditions. One is you're never allowed to hit me. And he agreed. He said, okay, I'll never hit you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he, and then I said, and you have to do everything I tell you to do. And you cannot be in a comedy. You just play the reality of the role. And he said, got it. And then the first day he came in with a twitch and he had a limp. And I called him into my camper. I said, hey, Sizemore. I called him Sizemore. I have to fire you. He said, why? I said, you're trying to be funny. And he said, it's a comedy. I said, no, it isn't. Let the audience decide it's a comedy. You just play the scene for the reality of the scene. If the scene is stupid, you'll be stupid, but don't play stupid. And uh, and then he got good. And then it, whenever Johnny Knoxville came up with something funny, he then in the next take stole it because he was really jealous of Knoxville. Hey, let me tell you a quick Knoxville thing. Do you know that I was on? Gilbert, you'll love this because I have a feeling you like really scatological stuff. Uh, do you know that <laughs> I was on? Uh, yeah, I was on uh, Jackass. Oh, oh. Do, do tell. I uh, And Johnny Knoxville said it was the most disgusting thing in the history of uh, Jackass, just so you know. Um, uh, I, I had a blackhead on the right side, right crease of my nose that oh. given five or six years of not, you know, squeezing it, I can build up internally a lot of pus. And I said to Johnny, I can squiggle out about 18 inches of pus. <laughs> and he said, I got to have this on Jackass. So we, I, I, we were both at um, Rick Baker's facility in Glendale and he brought his cr crew and, uh, they filmed me squeezing my nose and getting 18 squiggling in inches of pus out of the crease, nose crease on the right side of my nose. And Knoxville almost threw up as I was doing it. It was an achievement. for him the most disgusting thing ever. So check it out. I'm sure it's available somewhere. And you, you told the story of how your mother caused the problem on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing. We were really poor. Uh, you know, uh, we were often without electricity or uh, butcher money or telephone. Uh, you know, um, my father stole my bar mitzvah money to pay the rent back rent. That wow. kind of, um, and uh, but that occasionally knew enough mobsters. So occasionally we'd get into a little bit of money. It was a lighting salesman. But anyway, and so we're on our first airplane ever. We used to drive to Miami over the holidays, over the Easter holidays, because it was cheaper than the Christmas holidays. And it was a 30 hour nonstop drive, which is uh, quite a feat. But in any case, because that was the only driver, mom never learned how to drive. We were on an Eastern air. We had, we were ticketed on an Eastern airlines flight, but Eastern didn't have enough planes. So they rented one from a Mexican airline called Pan Americano. <laughs> so we got on oh this very festively painted plane. First time mom or I had been on a plane, dad had been on planes and 
Mom was always having angina attacks and threatening heart attacks. And so we're on the plane and mom announces she's having an angina attack and convinces the flight attendants, the bilingual flight attendants, to convince the pilots that she's going to die unless she immediately gets oxygen. So, of course, the pilot gets on the plane to make this announcement. But, A, you can't understand what he's saying because he's barely speaking English. And, B, it's so electronically futz that all, all we know is the pilot has said something and then drops all the oxygen masks. <laughs> oh, God. For my mother. Right. So there's 110 swinging oxygen masks with yellow cups and there's mom <laughs> sucking oxygen with everyone else on the plane going, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> so that's that was my very first uh, experience on a plane. It's why to this day I say that every time I get off an airplane, I view it as a failed suicide attempt because, listen, Planes, a 747 weighs 400,000 pounds. And you're telling me it flies seven miles above the earth because of the shape of the wing? It makes no No. sense. (laughs) And you're a tech guy. (laughs) And I'm a tech guy, and I don't believe it. I think it's all... Just sort of an agreed upon stupidity that uh, we think we're flying. I mean, really? Yeah. This thing is flying. It makes no sense. So, uh, you know, in the book, there's a very long chapter called Fear of Flying that no, not only is about that incident, but, you know, I was in a plane crash in Van Nuys. So, Gilbert, where do you live when you're not? Um, and I assume your wife is with you somehow. Where do you guys <laughs> live when you're not wife in the Berkshires? Nurse. Uh, in Manhattan. Uh, what neighborhood? <laughs> Why are you stopping over? I'm not He's asking for an address. Back. I'm asking for a neighborhood. In, in, in oh, wait, wait, Gilbert, wait, stop, stop. I'm sorry. Ask your wife what neighborhood you live in. <laughs> Hilarious. I, I really Chelsea. should do Chelsea. Where? Chelsea. Chelsea. Oh, Chelsea. Ah, I see. That's nice. Uh, Lovely there. (laughs) (laughs) We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Well, I, I remember someone saying to me, and then I noticed it, you were talking about uh, cameramen making funny shots and the, right. Uh, that they say, you know, and I noticed it, stunt people will do funny stunts rather than just fall down. Right. They'll fall down like a clown. Right. I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. No, it's true. In fact, I think that uh, in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, some guy gets shot and uh, he overacted, but got really hurt. He had to fall like four stories into boxes. And I think um, the director said he had to use the shot because the stunt guy got so hurt but hated that he had to use it because it was such overacting, you know? When people trip, they just trip and fall. They don't... 
from yeah. now on, when I watch a comedy, Barry, that's what I'm going to be thinking of. The people who were making, the, and I see a bad comedy, the people who were making this knew they were making a comedy. And that's a it's, fatal it's, decision. It's, it's never let anyone know you're making a comedy. Yeah, no. Listen, the other thing is always make the actors talk really fast. Because the other horrible thing, whether it's a comedy or not a comedy, is I hate to see acting. And if actors talk, if they're forced to talk really fast, they don't have any time to act or react. And that's where the, and that's so great. So my, my direction to every actor always is, okay, that's great. Let's do one 10 times faster. And that's the only direction I give people. It's like when Leslie Nielsen first got into like airplane and and loaded weapon or whatever that was, a loaded gun, naked gun. Naked Gun and Airplane, he was funny. And then he started to realize he was funny. And then in other comedies, he would really play it for laughs. And he stopped being funny. Yeah, absolutely. The Zucker brothers sort of discovered him as a uh, non-comedy actor who would be really good in, in, in comedies. You know, my the perfect example of that and my favorite movie is Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. I think it's the funniest movie ever. Oh, that made your wife leave again. I'm sorry. Uh, um, it's not a porno. Come she, back. She hates Barry Lyndon. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, you see Peter Sellers and, and uh, George. He's got all these guys that are not playing it for the comedy. And Sterling that's what Hayden makes too. it. Yeah. Sterling Hayden, yeah. uh, Slim Pickens, yeah. everyone's. Uh, playing it for the reality, but because the situation is absurd, that's what makes it fun. Of course. Uh, and as and in fact, George C. Scott is about thirty seconds too funny throughout the movie. Uh, there's about thirty seconds I would cut out at the end of some of his shots because he's trying to be a little too funny. Wow. You remember yeah. Gilbert, we had when we had David Zucker on, he was talking about how uh, Stack was right for him and, and Nielsen was right, but they kept having to sit on Lloyd Bridges. Yeah, I was going to say that. You can see that Stack yeah. is perfect. And Lloyd Bridges is trying to be a little too funny. That's it. You got yeah. it. Yeah. And and I heard I think it was George Burns who said he liked to hire actors on his shows because they believe that's so right, Gilbert. Hey, you know what I was thinking else? I was thinking about you, Gilbert. What's so lucky about you is as you as you get older, as you become oh, perhaps a little adult, perhaps you'll eventually have uh, you know be put in a home. Nothing, nothing changes. I don't know how any, I don't know how anyone would ever say. You know what? I think we've got a problem with Gilbert. I think he's, I think he's gotten a little bit uh, senile. Because how would anyone know? I love how you're talking in the future tense. <laughs> That's a Gilbert. You're being roasted on your own show. I know that was great. You know, on the subject of Kubrick, Barry uh, Ken Adam, the, the legendary production designer of Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, you hired for Adam's Family Values. Uh, and there's a lot of Kubrick, little, little Kubrick motifs and Kubrick uh, homages running, well, running Kubrick, through your work. Yeah, Kubrick was my favorite uh, director. 
you know, uh, I love 2001, A Space Odyssey. I love, obviously, I love Strange Love. Uh, I didn't like his later works. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, he directed, uh, um, what's the one with Vincent D'Onofrio? The, oh, uh, Full Vietnam Metal Jacket. One. Full Metal Jacket. And I was so interested because Vincent D'Onofrio played the villain in the first Men in Black. Oh, yes. He played the alien. Memorably. So I wanted to know how how Kubrick directed, you know? And I, I said, so tell me about working with Kubrick. And Vincent said, Kubrick made me come out to London two months early. And every Monday I was picked up in London with a car and driven out to Kubrick's uh, estate where Kubrick would look at me and say, gain more weight, come back in a week. Vincent would go back eat more stuff, come back in a week. This went on, he said, for six weeks as he got fatter and fatter and fatter. And finally, after six weeks, Kubrick said, great, that's the weight I want you to be at. And Vincent said, well, that's great. Now can we talk about my character? And Kubrick said, that's your job, not mine. Wow. And Kubrick gave, and, and all Kubrick did, and always did this, you, especially on Eyes Wide Shut, but always, he would do a hundred takes of every setup. And the reason he'd do all those takes was to get the actors so bored that they literally would stop acting. And I said, if only Kubrick had met me 50 years ago, I could have said, no, just tell him to talk fast and you don't have to do a hundred takes and you get, you achieve the same goal, which is get rid of all the acting. You could have saved him a time I, and uh, a fortune and a lot of time. That's I've right. Heard I could that have. about a couple of directors who said they like to get them to the point of exhaustion. With I, well, there was that story of um, you heard it on this show. Yeah, Milos it was it too. Oh, really? Treat Williams told us about Milos Forman that he would wait till everybody stopped acting. And and I heard there was a story, Jack Lemmon, I guess it was with uh, William Wilder, uh, who said who said a little less, a little less, a little, and and uh, finally Jack Lemmon said, "Look, if I do it any less, I'm not acting at all." And he goes, "Oh, thank God!" Uh, <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah, Billy Wilder. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. He could have just said, go, "Talk faster," and achieved the same thing, but. Um, yeah, no, thank God. I love that answer. It's so true. We got to ask you a little bit about Blood Simple. We had Emmett Walsh on the, on the podcast, Barry, which was an experience in itself. Yes. <laughs> I bet it was. I, I bet think he, it was. I, I think he got, someone twisted his arm to do it, and he, he gave a shit for about an hour and a half. Uh, but uh, go, Blood Simple, uh, there's so much wonderful stuff about it in the book. Uh, I want to ask you, though, about burying Ethan on your property. Right. <laughs> yeah. By the way, if you if you look at Blood Symbol closely, M.M. Walsh so didn't think that this movie was going to be released that he insisted he get paid in cash. Oh, he told week. us, yeah, walking around with, with stacks of cash. <laughs> right. And yeah. it was all in his yellow leisure suit that he wore throughout the <laughs> yeah. movie. And if yeah. you look carefully, you can see, you, you can tell when... The, a scene was shot in the movie by how thick his front pant pocket was. No, no. I remember the last day of shooting, Emmett had a problem with Joel. Emmett was a curmudgeon, duh. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and Joel, had, 
Yeah, no, real. And on the last day, Joel, Emma was saying, why am I doing this? And Joel said, just humor me, Emmett. And Emmett said, I've been doing it for six weeks, Joel. And um, but uh, we decided that we needed some more coverage of the scene where um, the boyfriend, Ray, buries the husband uh, played by Danny Hedaya uh, in the in in this field. But we needed more coverage. And uh, I I lived in, in East Hampton, Long Island, in what was referred to as my starter house. It was a small little house in East Hampton. And we needed uh, various additional shots of this burial. So we dug a hole in my backyard, put Ethan in it, covered his face with dirt. So you, uh, but, and Ethan was wearing Danny Hedaya's clothing and uh, Joe shoveling dirt in while Ethan is writhing around and we're fil- filming all this. And then we get, we, we fill up Ethan. I don't know how he didn't die or suffocate, but <laughs> Joel is yelling to Ethan, Eth, stop moving. I just want a shot of the grave with all the dirt on it, but no movement. But Ethan can't hear Joel because Ethan's covered with tons of dirt. They buried him in the yard, Gilbert. <laughs> so, so, so Ethan is still writhing around and Joel is yelling, Ethan, stop. And Joel, Ethan's still writhing. So Joel finally says to me, cut um and uh he i cut the camera and he digs a little hole and we see ethan's little face and his little glasses looking up and joel says ethan just no movement at all i just want the grave with no movement and ethan says we're going to cover you up again but no movement and ethan says hey joel and joel says what and ethan says oh never mind never mind and joel says what eth he says well, if you want the grave with no movement, and then Joe goes, right, yeah, okay, help me get him out of there, Barry. Because <laughs> <laughs> So I know that Ethan isn't under the ground in that cutaway of the, uh, the grave, but it wasn't Danny Hidea anyway, so it's a double cheat. There were great stories in the book, too, about, about you working with the Coens. And, you know, Gil- Gilbert, we, we love Miller's Crossing. Yes, I got to tell you, and and also one of the things about the Coens that I love is is how they manage to create their own language in, in yeah. films, especially a movie like Miller's Crossing with what's the rumpus and 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 giving yeah. me the hi hat. And by the way, talk about guys play, who play comedy straight. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, we, uh, you know, my wife and I still uh, use certain phrases from Coen Brothers movies. Uh, uh, we're going to have di- dinner with some decent folk. Um, yeah, that's I'm right. Specu- uh, from Miller's Crossing, there's uh, I'm speculating about a hypothesis. Also, great. which is John Polito has great, a lot of that great dialogue. Polito has a lot of great uh, dialogue, and uh, Joe and Ethan are such great writers and and directors, and uh, you know they do equally well with murder mysteries, comedies. Oh yeah, uh, you know they're really uh, incredibly versatile. Howard Hawks was like that. He would go. From a Western to a comedy to a, you know, it's so great that you don't, you didn't get pigeonholed uh, back yeah, they're, then. They're truly you know. unique. Yeah. Yeah. But, but tell Gilbert uh, what Totoro said to you at the conclusion of the shooting. Well, crossing, yeah. Because he'll appreciate uh, this. Uh, Totoro uh, was great uh, in Miller's Crossing. And uh, on the last day, Totoro came up to me. And said, I want to thank you so much. And I said, oh, yeah, it was fine. It was a pleasure. And he goes, no, I just want to let you know I based 
my entire performance of a whining homosexual by watching you. (laughs) And I said, you're welcome. You know, the truth is, uh, and I was so ahead of the curve, especially now with COVID-19. I always needed to be the center of attention. Yes, there's a director. Yes, there's actors. But when I was the cinematographer, it was all about me, all about me. And I was reminded recently, someone sent me an email who had read the book and said they were so surprised that I didn't mention this, but on the nine or 10 movies I was a cameraman on, I wore on my forehead a temperature strip so I could go up to any actor, grip, electrician, and say, do I have a temperature? And they'd look, you know, each degree was a uh-huh. different color. Yeah. Uh-huh. They go, no, it's between 98 and 99. I go, okay, I feel feverish. They go, well, and I literally always on every movie, I wore a temperature strip when I was a cameraman so I could make everyone worried about me. That's full. The, you know, the, your camera, your camera was obviously, as has been said over the years, was the character in itself in those films. Well, as that's the other J- thing. Janet Maslin pointed out in that first Times review of Blood Simple. Because I'm an only child of Jewish persuasion, uh, I needed to be the center of attention. And uh, when I became a cameraman, I thought, how do I how do people pay attention to me? So uh, in a lot of movies, uh, a movie that I'm not credited as a cinematographer on, even though I was, it was a union issue called three o'clock high Oh yeah, and raising Arizona and uh, throw mama from the train. Yep. Blood simple. The camera is a character in the movie. It's, and all these movies, the cinematography is so self-conscious and so saying, here I am, you know, you'll get some of those shots in raising Arizona it's it's all about me. Everything is about me. In fact, you guys didn't exist until I met you. It's very quantum <laughs> mechanics of me, but Schrodinger's cat and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You're, well, but your you're book, wel- and you're welcome. You're yeah, welcome. I appreciate that. Your, your book goes into some of those quantum mechanic theories. Like one of your theories, uh, and by the way, Griffin and Men in Black Three. You could do a whole. We could do a whole other podcast on this. Right on your on on that character and your philosophy of life and and uh, your quantum mechanics theory uh, that you one of them being that you died multiple times and then moved on into different multiverses. Do I have well, this right? Well, as you know, <laughs> one theory about the universe is that there are multiverses and billions and trillions of exact versions of Earth and. For every decision you make, you could have made another decision. And in a different multiverse, you did make that other decision. Can you imagine there may be trillions of more Gottfrieds out there? <laughs> Little Gilbert Gottfrieds sort of going, I'm going to laugh even longer here. Let's see if my wife will leave me a year sooner than she would. <laughs> But in any case, and I don't know, boy, Gilbert, I wish I was in the same room with you right now just to just to smile and say I don't mean anything. Well, yes, I do. But in any case, (laughs) 
We'll do another one down the line, maybe, when, when all this is I, over. I, yes, when it's all done. I've been in so many uh, near-death experiences that I kind of wonder if maybe I did die and just transferred. Now I'm living, like, there, you know, n- lives have nine cats. Maybe I have 50 or 70 trillion berries out there. Because one thing that isn't in the book is I, I and this will surprise Gilbert, um, I was, uh, I went to race car driving school and I was in a, oh. a race, an actual open wheeled race car. And I, I flipped the car and the car flipped multiple times in the sand. So the robot didn't protect me. They had to stop the race. So the other race car drivers could lift the car off of my head. How did I not die? I've, I've killed I've killed more elk than most hunters exclusively using various cars I've owned. I, I, I killed three elk in Telluride. I killed the deer oh my God. in East Hampton. And I killed an elk in North Platte, Nebraska, doing 80 miles an hour on Interstate at 80. So I just wonder if in all these cases I died and then just moved over to another multiverse. I suspect not, but you never know. What do you think, Gilbert? Do <laughs> you think it's possible that the other Gilbert Gottfrieds occupy other universes? Who are much cooler than I am. <laughs> no, no, that's, a, that's the unfortunate thing, Gilbert. They're all exactly like you. <laughs> <laughs> Barry, we got to ask you about some great character actors that we love. Because we, we've done 300 of these things. We love character actors. We want to ask you about Hackman from Get Shorty, but also the great Dennis Farina. Yes. Yeah. Farina, Farina, have you guys, did you guys ever meet him? We didn't get him. No. No, I met him at the Friars Club once, but we didn't have him on the show, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, Farina is perfection. Talk about someone who is hilarious in comedies by not playing funny. Yes. You know, Farina was in uh, both Midnight Run. Am I telling you Warren number, fucking Warren number one or Warren number two? Exactly. he was in both uh, Get Shorty for Me, and he was brilliant. And he was also in um, uh, another movie I directed called Big Trouble that sure. he's extraordinarily brilliant in. The nicest guy. And, you know, he was a cop, a Chicago cop yeah, for 20 years, beat hippies up at the 68 convention. And, uh, and he spends every – he spent every summer – in Chicago and every winter in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I said to Dennis, when you go back to Chicago, do you hang out with all your cop friends when you go back to Chicago? And he goes, you know, most of my friends were on the other side, meaning gangsters. Wow. And I just love that he was so, in fact, I asked him how many hippies he beat up at the Chicago convention and all that. He said, you know, Barry, I want you to like me. I'm not going to tell you. Uh, But he was quite a Chicago cop that was so funny because he wasn't trying to be funny. And you you mentioned Hackman. And we had a table read. We were trying to get a studio to make Get Shorty. No one would make it. Danny DeVito, who was producing it and was going to star in it, was wondering if it was ever going to get made. So we had a table read. And at the table read, we had Gene Hackman and Dennis Farina and and other actors playing other roles. Danny played the role eventually played by Travolta. 
Um, Leslie Ann Warren played the role that Rene Russo got. And But after the table read, I went up to Gene Hackman, who played his role, and I said, Gene, I just got to say, you were so fantastic. You were so funny. And Gene said, what the fuck are you talking about? And I said, well, you were just so funny. And he said, I'm not a comedian. I said, yeah, that's why you were so funny. And he said, well, I don't have a fucking clue what you mean, but thanks a lot. And then he left and then we hired him to uh, be uh, in the movie. And I, I remember Gene calling me up. I was finishing Men in Black, and we were also about to start pre-production. Oh, no, it's reverse. Sorry. we I was finishing some movie, and Gene called me up, and he said, listen, I'm thinking about growing a goatee because I think my character, his character's name is Harry Zim, uh, thinks he's an artist. And even though he's not, I think he would have a goatee. And I said, is there a movie you've had a goatee in so I could look at it and see what you look like? And he goes, no, I just thought I'd try it. Uh, and I said, well, why don't you grow the goatee? And if, if we, if it doesn't look right, we just, before we shoot, we'll just get rid of it. And he goes, I'm not going to fucking waste my time growing a goatee if you're not going to use it. And I said, <laughs> you mean like waste your time by not shaving? And he said, fuck that shit. I said, no, Gene, Gene. Okay, all right. Yes, I love it and, and we'll use it. And I figured if I hated it, I would deal with it down the road. But Gene was a handful, uh, but a brilliant actor, just very, um, very self-loathing and very angry. Interesting. But fantastic in, in, fantastic in, the, in the show and always fantastic. He, he then went on. He realized he can be funny without being funny. He then went on to work with Mike Nichols oh, in Birdcage, Bird right? Which again, Play he doesn't great. play. He doesn't play comedy funny, which is great. You remember Gilbert? We had Richard Donner on the podcast, and he was a handful in the seventies for Donner. I'm, it's nice to see he didn't mellow. Oh, is Lex yeah. Luthor? Yeah. <laughs> he gave him a very, very hard time, and it's nice to That's see he didn't. Gene. He didn't mellow and- over the years. What is the sign that you're with a bad director? Well, a bad director won't tell you to talk faster. (laughs) A bad director doesn't have everything worked out ahead of time. The worst place to make decisions is on a set. You want a director that in pre-production designs all the shots, makes decisions. And here's something you never want to hear from a director. I don't care whatever you want to do. Uh, you know, if, when the prop guy comes to you and says, wow. I got a red folder and a green folder, which one do you want, boss? You don't, the prop guy doesn't want the director to say, ah, it doesn't matter, you choose one. Even though you don't care, as a director, you have to make every decision. So you go, the red one. And then on the set that day, you go, oh, Jesus, I put that woman in a red dress and now I don't see the folder And then you go to the prop guy and you go, hey, remember when I said red folder? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I got the green. I still got the green one. You want it, sir? You want it, sir? By the way, sir is crew code for asshole. (laughs) As in, would you like the camera back where we originally had it, sir? (laughs) Or even good morning, sir. It's their way of being able to say, 
I think you're an asshole without saying it to you. So they call you sir. I never let anyone call me sir on the set. And Gilbert, you shouldn't either. I love <laughs> I love that. I'm, I, go ahead, Gil. I, I don't oh, want to no. make you tell tales out of school, uh, uh, Barry, but there, I heard you talking about James Caan on Alec Baldwin's podcast and, and you know, the Where's My Mark story. <laughs> you, you, you loved Kathy Bates on the set of Misery, but not not so James Caan. Well, James, listen, here's the problem. Jimmy is a lovely guy, just uh -huh. a lovely guy, surprisingly Jewish, surprisingly former rodeo star. Yeah. Hey, Gilbert, she's back, so be careful. <laughs> uh, yep, Sonny so, Corleone was Jewish. <laughs> Sonny Corleone was Jewish. And um, however, Jimmy has to spend 86 pages in that bedroom, of which 70 pages are in bed. And Jimmy is the most hyperactive, unable to not daven, not move his knees up. And he's just out of control, like out of control energy. And he's got to be in bed for 86 pages. I remember, you know, and also once you've let a bedroom for 86 pages, there's not much to do except make fun of either Jimmy Kahn or if Gilbert was on the set, Gilbert. But Gilbert wasn't there for <laughs> I'd us. I'd like to see Gilbert oh, we in had, misery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Gilbert <laughs> starring Gilbert Gottfried. Um, so, uh, you know, I would, you know, he used to hang out at the, the Playboy Mansion. Oh, yes. And, sure. and I said to him, did you ever sleep with any playmates? And he said, I slept with 17 play, 17 in a row playmates of the month. And I said, what, who is, who is the 18th? What month refused to have sex with you? And after 17, he said, oh, I can't tell you that bear. I said, I'm not asking for a name. I'm asking for a month. I'm not even asking for a year. He said, I, I can't tell you. I said, because it would embarrass April. I mean, he was like a weird guy. That's and, hilarious. Uh, uh, the very, very first day of shooting, the very first day, Jimmy has to light a match. He's finished his, his character has finished his novel. He opens up a bottle of champagne and using his nail with one of those strike anywhere matches, he has to light a match. Take after take after take. It's a very, very first day of shooting. And we're in uh, Reno, Nevada. And, uh, and we break for lunch, having not gotten a shot of Jimmy just striking this match. And I go into Rob, Rob Reiner's camper. Rob was a director. And I said, hey, Rob, remember Vietnam? And Rob goes, yeah. And I said, get out now. Get out now. <laughs> Don't wait for 50,000 men to die. Fire him right now. Recast. <laughs> And Rob and I and his wife, Michelle, sweetie, my wife and I introduced Rob and Michelle. And to this day, whenever Rob and I get together and something goes a little wrong, Rob will say, hey, back. Remember Vietnam? That's hilarious. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Uh, I got one question I want to ask you from a listener, uh, Barry, from Harold Steenworth. He says, would you ever consider a sequel, doing a sequel to Throw Mama from the Train with Gilbert? 
in the role played by Danny DeVito. <laughs> now I'm sounding like Gilbert. Or maybe uh, Ann Ramsey's part. <laughs> you know, uh, when Ann died, uh, uh, Ann had had tongue cancer the whole time we were working. Ann died, and uh, Danny spoke at Ann's uh, memorial. And everyone was very solemn and all that. And Danny DeVito got up there and said, you know, if Anne is looking down at us right now, I know what she's thinking. She's thinking, there goes your sequel, fat boy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, You know what? Gilbert would be kind of genius as as mama. Oh, my God. Frank, you were so on to something. You, I know. I'm well, gonna, we, we have to thank this listener. It was his idea. <laughs> uh, I'm going to email. I'm going to email uh, Danny right now about Gilbert playing Mama. But uh, Danny actually, I think, is thinking about doing uh, maybe figuring out what else to do with that character because it was such a great character. Oh yes, yes. But uh, I a, think there's a throwaway it, gag in that movie that's made one of the funniest things. I think you know what I mean when they're driving the frying pan. No, they're, when they're driving in the car and he's and he's, he's cows. Fr- yes, it's cows. <laughs> well, here's the fucking thing. <laughs> it just uh, made me laugh like crazy. Here's the funny thing. Danny had two aunts and Danny had to drive cross country with his two aunts. One aunt read every single sign that uh, they would pass on the 3000 miles, you know, Stuckey's. Uh, exit 42. <laughs> That's great. This exit to Des Moines. And the other aunt was a repeater. So one would go exit 42 and the other one would go exit 42. <laughs> and, and so Danny told me that one of the ants would go cows and the other ant would go cows. So I told Danny to say cows great. and Danny took it out of the cut. And I was visiting the edit one day and I said, Danny, what happened to cows? And he said, uh, I don't know, isn't it off topic? I said, yeah, that's what's so great about it. So yes. Danny put it back in. So Cows is in there because I was in the cutting room. In fact, in Blood Simple, there's a great shot where the camera is tracking along the bar. Talk about a self-conscious camera. Oh, yeah. And there's a drunk lying on the bar and the camera gets up to the drunk, booms up, goes over the bar, booms back down again and continues on its way. And I visited the Coen brothers in the cutting room one day and Joel had cut it out of the movie. And I said, Joel, where's the shot going over the drunk? And he said, I don't know. It seemed kind of self-conscious. And I said, the whole movie is (laughs) self-conscious. Why pick on that shot? No question. So they put it back in. So I'm, I'm... yeah. Thank you for putting those two moles in. That, 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 yeah. that, that is a, a wonderful non sequitur and throw mama from the train. Real yeah. quick, here's two uh, things. Uh, Michael Jackson's cameo in, in Men in Black 2. How, how the hell did that come about? And had he not seen the joke at his expense in Adam's Family Values? <laughs> uh, I think he must not have seen the uh, pedophile joke in Adam's <laughs> yeah, Family I Values. Say, hey, <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, no, uh, he also is in Men in Black 1 in some... He may be one of the aliens. Oh, I can't remember. On the, but on the terminal? On the screen. Yeah. But the funny thing about that day is uh, he couldn't remember Zed's name. And we had to do take after take after take because he kept calling Zed. 
played by Rip Torn. Sure. Zeke. And I, I'd say cut. Michael, it's Zed. Uh, okay, roll camera. We do it again. Uh, hi, Zeke. Cut. Michael, it's it's Zed. And then after about 15 takes, Michael said, Barry, can you just change his name to Zeke? <laughs> I said, you know, Michael, In a we, sequel. we really... <laughs> We we really can't. It's been established for two movies. Everyone else calls him Zed. But he, he was lovely, and he so wanted to be a Men in Black, so wanted to. And uh, Sony had his record contract, and Michael was holding out for a bigger role. But we eventually uh, compromised on that scene. Wow. And so two two actors who left us last year, uh, uh uh, Rip Torn, you, who you just alluded to, and of course, uh, Amanda was at your wedding, the great Albert Finney. Maybe yes. One, one quick anecdote about each, and talk about playing comedy straight. Rip Torn? Well, Rip, Tommy and Rip are both from Texas and hated each other, so oh, that was a problem. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Just, the, the very quick story about Rip is Rip has to say to Tommy, uh, you know, Will has been recruited, and the line to from Rip to Tommy is, K, give the kid some fire power, meaning a gun, right? So roll camera, uh, Rip says, K, give the kid some fire power. Cut. Rip, I have no idea what you're saying. He said, fire power. I said, can you say fire power? I'm saying fire power. <laughs> anyway, this is take after take after this. And finally, Tommy says, will you just have that senile fuck say, give the kid a big gun, which is what we ended up. <laughs> uh, and then the Albert Finney story is Albert was a dream. He would be out drinking with the grips and the electricians in New Orleans. till four in the morning and then come in at six and know every line of dialogue. We had our. Sweetie and I were married at the rap party for Miller's Crossing, mm-hmm. surrounded by grips and electricians and sound men. And Albert was there and Albert bought an entire barge of fireworks. Albert loves a party. And uh, and he gave us this great toast. And then the entire the entire Mississippi River lights up in fireworks. But let me tell you a, a very quick story. It's not about Albert, but it is about shooting Miller's Crossing because we shot it in uh, New Orleans and Joe, Ethan and I stayed at the Canal Place. And the Canal Place is this huge hotel that said in huge red neon letters across the roof, Canal Place. Well, a week into being there in pre-production, your wife is making signals saying we're almost out of time, but this could be very quick. (laughs) And Gilbert, you're going to wear that tie? A week into pre-production in New Orleans, we're staying at the canal place. There's a hurricane that takes out the letter C. So for the next eight months, we are staying at the Anal Place Hotel (laughs) in New Orleans. And they never turn the neon off. And literally, for I'd say to Joel and Ethan, you want to go eat at Commander Palace's uh, Saturday night or this place? And they'd go... No, let's just say, let's just eat at the anal place. So we were literally <laughs> staying at the anal place hotel. Uh, Barry, there's so much we could talk about, and there's so much in the book that, of course, we will not get to in 90 minutes. 
you know, sometime come back if you're if you're up for it, if you had a good time, and we'll just we'll just talk about favorite movies. We'll talk about Kubrick and the Marx Brothers. I know you I love, love Gordon, I know you love Gordon Willis and Pennies from Heaven. Yeah. Uh, I would love to just to hear Gilbert laugh and just to see his wife just you have Gilbert, you have no idea what's been happening the last 90 minutes. <laughs> Don't play this back. Don't play the video back on Zoom. <laughs> I would love to come back. Uh, I had such a great time. We'll, Frank, do, and, we'll do it again. We yeah. want to ask you about your, your Superman thesis film. And, oh, yeah, sure. And Frank Perry. Gilbert loves the swimmer. You worked for oh, Frank. Yes. You worked for Frank Perry. So there you must would be not stuff. love uh, Gilbert. Don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk about more stuff and more Kubrick and 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 Owen Roisman and all kinds of other things and Dee Dee Allen next time. Yeah. But the book is not only anecdotes; it is also a philosophy book. Uh, it's a comedy book. It's a filmmaking book. It's just wonderful. We screwed up the title. So it's Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, Memoirs of a Neurotic Filmmaker. And and Gilbert, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, who's uh, Barry's neighbor, told him he would make a good stand-up comic. Oh. Well, he said I would enjoy being a stand-up comic. Ah. Ah. Uh, he didn't say it would be good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So, so he, <laughs> but, he never actually said to you, you will be a great stand-up comic. <laughs> <laughs> Look what you did. You did a Jerry Seinfeld imitation. You, behind you is a woman shaking her head no. <laughs> Gilbert, in 300-plus shows, I don't think a guest ever got you so quickly. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you am Gilbert. I'm I'm a slightly less annoying version of the Gilbert. I admit it. <laughs> Barry has changed his his life's philosophy over the years, Gilbert. From from uh, live in fear to what is it? Cling to the wreckage. Oh no! It's uh, live in uh, it's uh, regret the past. Oh it's, <laughs> well, my philosophy is regret the past, fear the present, dread the future. And uh, but yeah, I used to <laughs> I, I used to say uh, live in fear, and now I say uh, cling to the wreckage, which was the name of a book I really liked. Uh, cl clinging to the wreckage is a metaphor to if you're in a boat and it capsizes, you want to be the guy who doesn't know how to swim because you'll cling to the wreckage, while all the really the optimists will, will try to swim to shore and die and drown. <laughs> you and I will be the ones going, I knew we shouldn't have gotten on this boat. I knew it. Thank you. You guys are twin sons of different mothers. <laughs> I, I really think so. The, we'll talk about Where's Papa next time and so many, so many other things. Uh, the book is wonderful. Uh, to our listeners, if you, if you haven't seen uh, uh, Get Shorty, Shame on You, Do It Immediately. Uh, and uh, Blood Simple, of course. We the, the people who listen to this show are film buffs, Barry, so they they really have seen a lot of your work. Well, well can I just say one last thing? Because yeah. of uh, all the bookstores being closed, yeah. anyone who can deal with Gilbert's voice can deal with my voice. So the other oh, way to go great. is to go to audible.com where I read the book for 11 hours, and um, I'm friends with the the uh, founder and president and CEO of audible.com. And he's very impressed with my reading and feels I do a great job with quotations. So check it out. 
Okay. On audible.com. Gilbert, did you read your book? Is there an audible oh, version of oh Rubber Balls and Liquor? Oh, my God, yes. Okay. I hated every second of recording it. <laughs> I got to sign one, Barry. I got this in Barnes & Noble on the Upper East wow. Side. Wow. I missed you wow. by a couple of days. Oh, but wow. You, but, but you had signed it. The book is wonderful yeah. to our listeners. Please pick it up. I've laughed a lot. Gilbert, you've been roasted for 90 minutes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> when Barry's in New York, he's going to come and pack your your luggage for you. Oh, yes. <laughs> and <laughs> and drive me to the airport. In effect. <laughs> Here's your Uber. Uber. That will be me driving you to the airport. Barry, this was a kick, and we want to thank our mutual pal, Alan Zweibel, for setting this up. <laughs> Alan Zweibel, Rob Reiner, and I are talking about uh, making Barry Sonnenfeld call your mother into a television, a streaming television series. We're in negotiations with Warner Brothers, and I just realized Gilbert could play 10-year-old Barry. <laughs> oh, that's great. I was thinking of Dick I, the Porno Director for Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a kick, Barry. Thank you so much. Well, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And today we've been talking to what I think is the only guest we've had who has been shit on. <laughs> well, at least literally. <laughs> <laughs> the great Barry Sonnenfeld. Let's take that one again. Sonnenfeld. Sonnenfeld, that's it. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You want to do the ending again, Gil? <laughs> it's okay. not going to happen. Okay. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried again, and this is Gilbert. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's. Ah, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we've been talking to Barry Sonnenfeld. <laughs> Let's have listen. You wait, wait, Gilbert. <laughs> Dara and Frank and I are going to go out to lunch. <laughs> when we come back, hopefully you will have gotten through it. And then we'll just do the station ID. I've got to get from Telluride, Colorado, so take a little while so you have plenty of time. <laughs> Hi, it's Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> oh, and it's Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and and our guest has been uh, Frank. Do you want to? Say it's like Fritz Feld, Barry okay. Sonnenfeld. Barry Sonnenfeld. There you go. Who's the Jew here? Yeah, <laughs> Barry Shivin boy. Yeah, Barry. Valgo Bobby Fighting <laughs> Jerry Lewis, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Barry, thanks a lot. Now I was cool, cool. You know, just relax. kicking it around the house. When I knock, I knock, I knock, and a voice, yo, can have him come out. Now I don't mind being a friend and showing a little bit of flavor. But Wednesday, Bugsley, Gomez, Festa, man, them some strange neighbors. They do what they want to do, say what they want to say, live how they want to live, play how they want to play, dance how they want to dance, kick and they slap a friend. They do what they want to do.
thing you know Coming in me was a hand with the fingers I stepped in Now I tried to play it on off And act like I'm having a ball But what do I see? Yo, a perm with feet Standing about three feet tall I'm not here. They do what they wanna do Say what they wanna say Live how they wanna live Play how they wanna play Dance how they wanna dance Dick and they stop a friend About the Adams, you know the hammer is with it. Act a fool, no balls, swoop, goofy and randy, you know we kick it. Now it's the time to get it in your mind. It's okay to be yourself. Be yourself. Take foolish pride and put it aside like the Adams. Yo, they did. That's a family. They do what they wanna do, say what they wanna say, live how they wanna live, play how they wanna play, dance how they wanna dance, dick and they still afraid. about the Adams family. They don't hurt anyone. They just like to have fun.